Um, well, thank you this morning for turning up to hear a complete Egypt talk about wisdom. Um, and hopefully by the end of this talk, I will have explained a little bit as to why an Egypt can talk about wisdom and why it's actually quite important to say that an Egypt can talk about wisdom. Um, as well as mentioned that I'm a high school teacher um, and I'm also addressing apologetics. Apologetics, for those of you who don't know, um, it's just a big word really for saying how you can reason with people about Christianity, just how you can respond to objections that uh, people might bring to Christianity or how you can try and show that Christianity is a reasonable point of view. And that's something that I'll be trying to address and talk a little bit about this morning. Um, but also um, on this topic of wisdom, um, on the topic of wising up about getting your head in gear. Obviously as a teacher this is something that I have to say quite a bit to students. Um, and the great focus, I mean this morning, you know, I'm quite used to people sitting in cars, don't be afraid to fill those in. Um, you know, day and daily now teachers are being continually evaluated by their students who are continually telling us how to teach. Um, so quite used to that. Um, there's this massive focus on results, on measurable outcomes. And it infects us all. It infects the church. I guarantee you in your church there will be prayers going up for people waiting the results this week or next week or the week after. Um, teachers right now are praying for their own results. You know, every year comes around now I'm looking to see what will my results be like? How will I compare to other departments? Um, there's also the big question that comes out every time when somebody goes into a careers department is you know, what will your annual income be? You judge a job and it's annual income. Measurable results uh, and intelligence being uh, guided by results and the whole thing has gone completely out of control. To the extent that somebody can try to measure their intelligence by the set of exam results that they get. Exam results are a very good measure of how well somebody has performed in a particular exam. But what I keep trying to get through to my students is you're really only as good as your last set of exam results. And then once those exam results are passed and you're into the job that you want, you're only as good as your last reference. Yet with all, and, and most of us know throughout life, I mean, the last time I was asked for my A-level results is when I went and did my degree, and after that it was, you, know, you got your job, and after that it's just a matter of how your past principles think you performed, and that determines how you'll do in the future. Yet with all, we have this tremendous focus on results. Uh, and that's how we judge intelligence, and that's then how we begin to judge wisdom, and it's something that I think that we really need to change as a church. Anyhow, I'm going to read uh, two passages of scripture just to begin this morning. Uh, one is my favourite, which hopefully will become clear at the end while I'm reading that, uh, and then the one on the screen. This is from Proverbs chapter uh, 30, verse 24. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The answer are people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. The rock badgers are people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. The locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. And then the, word, the verse that we have on the screen here, James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what is wisdom? 
Um, certainly when I think about wisdom, uh, one of the first things that would come to my mind is the whole idea of a wise crack or the one line put down. So for example, I mean, uh, Ken Do or Dobbs, uh, Frank Dobbs, the health secretary, for example, when criticized by Edwina Curry, he came up with the line, you know, when Edwina goes to the dentist, he needs the anesthetic. Um, there's the one line put down, which has become something that we associate with somebody being wise, being clever. I think this goes back to people who, I don't know, I'm, how many people are the generation who watched the West Wing or TV programs like that, where um, I think the newsroom also um, something very similar, where the wisest person, the, the person who was the cleverest, the smartest guy in the room is the guy who's always got the smartest thing to say. The guy who can put down the opposition with one line, very clever, very quick, very witty. Um, another little story about wisdom that is fairly apocryphal. Um, story about a guy who goes into an exam room, um, a philosophy exam, and the question is written down, what is a risk? And the student sits down and writes down on his paper after thinking for a minute, this is, and walks out of the exam room, and he's given 100%. Now, um, I don't know how many university lectures you do. University exams do not work like that. You can give the cleverest exam answer in the world. And if you're sitting there with a mark scheme beside you as a teacher and it doesn't match up, you're not getting 100%. I can't find anybody or any source that said this actually happened. Originally, uh, it was a story uh, that circulated around Oxford where the question was, what is courage? And the student broke down, this is, and got 100% from his lecturer. Um, and it's just interesting the way that urban legend has changed. We don't, nobody cares what courage is anymore. People want to know what risk is. People want to know how you assess you know, your business investments. But again, this is an example of what people take wisdom to be. The, the, the clever thing to say. The one line put down. You know, the guy's just got that wee bit of insight. The guy's got the, he's got, you know, he, you know Aaron Sorkin could be writing his lines. He knows exactly what to say, exactly when to say it. And he always gets the laugh. And he walks out looking clever. I think to some extent this goes back to, um, in churches this goes back to, the story of Solomon. We all know the story of Solomon, Solomon being the wisest man who ever lived. And the story that we all remember from Sunday school is the story of the two women, um, the, the, the two prostitutes who bring in a, a baby. They each had a baby. One baby died overnight, and now they're arguing over which baby it is that, that, that you know, that which mother actually owns this baby who's currently alive. And Solomon pauses for a minute and says, okay, what I want you to do is cut this baby in half. And we'll give what half to each mother. And of course, the mother who, the, the woman who actually owns the child, the mother who actually is the mother of the child, goes, No, no, give her to the other woman. And at that stage, Solomon knows who the real mother is. And again, that's how we think of wisdom. So the story in our minds goes like this. Okay? Solomon, when he first becomes king, is given a vision, a dream by God, in which he's asked for anything in the world. Solomon asks to be able to judge rightly have the knowledge to judge rightly. God says you've asked for wisdom and I'm going to give you wisdom. And then Solomon goes on to make this, say this very clever thing to these people in this trial. He works out, he gets the solution to the problem. He's just like Sherlock Holmes. And then we come to a text like James chapter 1. And it says anybody who asks for wisdom, if he asks for it, when faith and you don't do it in a double-minded way, you'll get wisdom. So we go through the process as 
kids, right way through church, we grew up with this idea in our head that, right, if I just go to God and I genuinely ask for wisdom, I'm going to be just like Sherlock Holmes. Or I'm just going to be like that guy in the philosophy exam. I'm going to know the right thing to say at the right time in the right place and I'm going to be clever. And there's a mistake there. That story about Solomon uh, and the two women actually bears some reflecting on. Solomon has to be able to, to judge wisely. If you think about that story, it actually starts like a horror tale. And you know, Two women, two prostitutes, living in poverty, a child dies, you have infant mortality. They both come to the king. And one woman is trying to steal her friend's child. And the same woman by the end of the story is actually prepared to see that child die out of spite. We're talking about people who live in the lowest of the low places of the earth. And yet within that, Solomon is able to say, I'm going to test for love. I'm going to apply a test for love here. These people may be the lowest of the low. These people do not even deserve to walk into my palace. Especially them both kill the child. Nobody in the court was outraged at the idea that they would kill the child. He's the king. These women are scum. Yet Solomon is prepared to say, let's see which woman loves the child. He looks for love in the darkest places on the earth. He's prepared to do justice for the lowest of the low. That's the wisdom. It's not the clever thing to say. It's not that Sherlock Holmes moment. It's the fact that Solomon is able to see the important things. What is wisdom? I mean, what are we talking about when we're talking about wisdom? The Greeks had a saying. The fox knows many things. But the hedgehog knows one big thing. The fox knows many things. But the hedgehog knows one big thing. This, this floats around business a little bit. And, and um, you would hear it in business seminars from time to time. And people tend to miss the point. But the idea would be, I mean, foxes, for those of you who are interested in nature channel documentaries, my daughter delights in them, and now I can tell you thousands of things about thousands of species which I'll never encounter in real life. But, I mean, foxes are incredible creatures. They have been able to adapt to just about any environment on Earth. Deserts, um, you can go to Antarctica, you can go to urban environments. This is the extraordinary thing about foxes. They've been able to adapt to human beings. They are incredibly cunning creatures. They are extraordinarily able to find a food source in the most unforgiving of environments. Yet with all, observe a bit of nature, and unless a fox finds a dead one, he's not going to get to eat his hedgehog. For all the things that the fox knows, the hedgehog's got one thing in its brain, and it knows how to do it. And it curls up into a ball. Well, actually, what's actually quite interesting here, this is where the documentaries come in handy. The hedgehog actually knows two big things. I don't know if you know this. Hedgehog normally will curl into a ball. If the fox can flip the hedgehog over onto the soft side where the head is, whenever the fox goes down, the hedgehog actually does a little headbutt. It actually flips its head up at quite high speed and will actually jam its quills into the fox's nose, which the fox doesn't want because the nose is very important for finding food. But the point is the hedgehog knows big things. And the important thing in life is to know the big things. The important thing is not to accumulate knowledge. The important thing is not to accumulate GCSE grades. 
it's not to accumulate a great personal income um, or A-level grades or to get your first class honours or, um, or, or to go to tech and get your GMVQ level two. That is not the important thing in life. To know many things is not wisdom. To be regarded as a clever person like a fox is not wisdom. In this little parable, it's not the fox that has wisdom, it's the hedgehog. Hedgehog's a fairly dumb creature, but it knows one big thing. And in the ancient world, that's what wisdom was. Wisdom was knowing the big things. Wisdom is about getting first things first. Without wisdom, you're like somebody trying to do a jigsaw puzzle without the most important piece, the cover of the box, which shows you what the jigsaw is meant to look like. If you don't know the big thing, you're not going to get the little things into the right place. So the question is, I mean, what do we mean by wisdom? What does James mean by saying that if you want wisdom, ask for it? What's the big thing that James is talking about here? And the verse that we should immediately come to your mind, but never does, I think, particularly because of that story about Solomon or because we have Solomon so fixed in our brains when we think about wisdom in the Bible, is that the Bible continually talks about wisdom from beginning to end. It's one of the big things of the Bible, wisdom. But the verse that we all know, because it comes up three different times, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follows precepts of good understanding to him, and to him belongs eternal praise. Proverbs 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 1 verses 7 to 8. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. Hear instruction, my son. Hear your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Um... Job 28 actually puts this a bit more firmly. It makes it more clear. Job 28, where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds in the sky. Death and destruction say only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To shun evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. The fear of the Lord. If any of you want wisdom, says James, ask God, ask in faith, and he'll give it to you. What's wisdom? James, I mean, one of the extraordinary things that, um, that I've discovered when looking at ancient education systems compared to ours, um, in the ancient world, they didn't have books didn't have codecs, didn't have little books that you could flick through. Everything was on scrolls. Now the idea of carrying the Bible, I mean what the book of Matthew would fit in one scroll. So if you can imagine carrying a New Testament or a Old Testament as they would have done around them with you, it just wouldn't have been physically possible to bring the the Old Testament to church. Writing was expensive. Uh, a scribe was very much like a trained artist. He wasn't just literate, he could perform a craft. 
Yet every Jewish boy had to know Torah. Every Jewish boy had to know the Old Testament. How did how did they do that? They memorized. Memorization was the key. To, was the key to education back then. Memorization, and they learned texts not only forwards but backwards quite often. When James talks about wisdom, he's not talking about with one or two Bible stories that he learned in Sunday school in his head. He's talking with the whole Old Testament in his head. And so when he says, "If you want wisdom," He knows that he's talking about your things like the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want it, ask for it, and God will give it to you if you have faith. What do I mean by the fear of the Lord, though? Um, fear of the Lord quite often to us, um, and I think just automatically, just be a automatic think of something like terror. You know, um, fear is a raw terror emotion. Fear of the Lord is a phrase. Okay, it's a little phrase. If I was to say to you that something is beyond the pale. You, you don't work out the, what the word pale means and what the word beyond means and work out, you know, it, beyond pale means beyond what's acceptable. Chancing your arm. You can't work out what that means by looking at what chancing means and arm means. The collection of the words means something a bit more. And when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not just talking about, um, when I was raised it was quite obvious, but it's not really fear, it's respect. It involves an awful lot more than that. So at the end of Deuteronomy, when God's talking, God says, I've heard the words of these people which they have spoken to you. So God gives the Ten Commandments. The people say, listen, we've seen what God's done for us. Uh, Moses, will you tell God that we're going to follow these commandments because we respect him? God replies, I've heard the words of these people which they have spoken to you. Oh, that they have such a heart as this, always to fear me and keep my commandments. And Moses then goes back to the people. And says, now this is the commandment that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may fear the Lord your God and that you shall love the Lord your God. The fear of the God of the Lord, the love of the Lord, they're the same thing in the Bible. That's difficult for us to get our heads around sometimes. There's a film called Rudy, it's a fantastic line in it, where a guy is uh going to a priest for advice and he gives him says look the first piece of advice I can give you is that there is a God and you're not him right there is a God and you're not him when we're talking about the fear of the Lord well first of all we're talking about something the Bible means something like respect and total dependence the fear of the Lord begins with humility the fear of the Lord begins with something like the fisherman's prayer the fisherman's prayer is quite simple Lord your sea is so great and my boat is so small. The fear of the Lord begins with the knowledge that you're not stronger than life. Now, not only are you not stronger than death, not only are you not stronger than that, you're just not stronger than life. You can't cope with life on your own. You can't. The fear of the Lord begins with the idea that because you did not make the world and because you did not make everyone in it and because you didn't plan it, you can't control what's going on and you don't know the way on your own. The fear of the Lord begins with understanding that the only person who can help you right now is God. It begins with that sort of humility. If I was, um, I don't know if any of you have experiences with particularly good doctors, particularly doctors who might be operating on you. But when you go to a doctor for advice, when you can have an intellectual knowledge in your head that this doctor is a very smart person. I'm sure we've all known people like this who will go to a doctor, will hear the doctor's advice, and completely ignore it. 
If you walk into a doctor and a doctor says to you, Graham, you need to change your eating habits or you will die. This hasn't happened to me. I know the people that this happened to. You're going to change what you're doing or you're going to die. You're going to change the way you're living. If you have a proper respect and fear of the doctor, if you'll listen to that advice, it'll change you. There'll be respect there. That does not mean that you mightn't also have a great affection for that doctor. If that doctor has been keeping you alive through his hard work and dedication over years, there'll be a deep dedication and love of that doctor too. But at the end of the day, if you're dealing with somebody who holds his life in your hands and whose advice is keeping you alive, there'll be a respect there. There'll be something that you will depend upon. It can even be a little bit frightening going to that person. Because that person can give you advice that you know that you very may, well may not want to hear. Now, I have this recurring nightmare where a doctor tells me I'm not allowed to take coffee anymore. It's a dread, it's a dread of mine. You know, some stage the doctor will say, no coffee, and, and that will be my life over. But you, you know, there is a doctor can tell you much more serious things than that. Um, I think the person who gets this best actually was um, C.S. Lewis. And the figure of Aslam. I'm assuming that most people are familiar with the land, the witch, and the wardrobe. The picture of Christ, he uses the, the figure of Aslam, the lion. And it's continually said that Aslam, you know, the children, whenever they find out about Aslam, this great lion, they're told he's good. But he's not safe. He's good, but he's not tame. The best scene that I, in the books I think of that comes in the silver chair where there's a character Jill who comes into Narnia for the first time and she's thirsty and she comes across a stream and she meets Aslan sitting beside the stream, the lion sitting beside the stream and she works out that this lion can talk, she's a magical animal, it's a kid's book, you can do things like this she works, she finds out that, that Aslan can talk and Aslan tells her come and drink, the water's good take a drink you're thirsty she says, well, if I do, do you, do you promise you won't date me? No, I'm not promising you that. And within that, you see, there's you know, the, the, within the figure of Aslan, you've got a lion. He picks the lion because it's dangerous. It's the power to destroy you. Yet there's something attractive about that lion as well. You can't see a picture of the lion and the lion's mane without wanting to go up and stroke it and be near it. And it's the perfect image for what we're talking about in the Bible when you talk about the fear of the Lord. There's this, there's respect, dependence, the idea that you absolutely need this person. But there can be devotion to you, and the two always go together. The fear of the Lord always goes with total devotion. In the same way that a person has been devoted to a doctor who can save their life. But there is a God and you're not him. That's the advice that, uh, that came from the film Rudy. And the ancient Greeks knew that. But the Bible has something um, a little different than that. The Bible just doesn't say there is a God. And you're not him. And you need him. The Greeks had that much figured out. The Bible actually says that the fear of Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. is how it's translated in English. In other words, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. Well, what's the big deal about that? Yahweh is a name. 
when God makes Moses, he gives a name. So when the Bible says the fear of God, they're not talking about the fear of some abstract principle. They're not talking about the fear. The Bible's not talking about the fear uh, of, you know, oh, well, my philosophy has worked out that you know I'm a very small person and I need some. It's talking about, listen, you need God because you can know him. He can make himself known to you. And not only do you know him, but you need him. And that's a huge difference between the world of the intellectual Greeks and the world of the Bible. Between the world of the intellectual and the world that the Bible gives to us. Because the Bible is saying that only is there, not only is there a God that you must fear, but you can know this God. It's a personal relationship that you need. Now you can begin to see what James is talking about. If you want wisdom... You've got to ask God for it and depend on him. In other words, if you want wisdom, you've got to get to know God by asking him and depending upon him. That's what James is getting at. I don't know if there's anybody in here who gets a little bit confused. Sometimes when I went to the theological college, there was always this big debate about James and Paul. For those of you who are interested in that thing, um, in the book of Romans, the book of Galatians, Paul is very much interested in justification by faith. The book of James is about how you get wisdom by faith. That removes the tension for anyone who's interested in that debate. The rest of the human race will, will move on. But um, that's only part of the story. Because in the Old Testament, and James are talking about the fear of God, throughout the New Testament, Jesus is continually presented as God's wisdom. Book of the, the, it's, uh, the book of Sirach or sometimes Ecclesiasticus. Um, it's worth knowing this verse. It doesn't appear in the Bible. It's an apocryphal book, but a well-known Jewish book around about the time of Christ. And in that, it talks about wisdom and how you get wisdom. And Sirach writes, Gain wisdom for yourself at no cost. Take her yoke upon your neck that your mind may receive teaching. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you re- give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Wisdom for the Jews was you know, spoken in terms of taking a yoke, and also in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is continually full of come to me and learn from me, come to me and learn from me, always talking about wisdom. When Jesus talks and when Jesus invites people, he says to the Jews, look, if you want wisdom, come to me. If you need wisdom, come to me. Jesus is continually presented as wisdom, again, as Paul says in the book of Colossians. So what does James mean by wisdom? He means you fear the Lord, you respect God. In other words, he means something like you need repentance and trust and dependence. If you want wisdom, you come to God and you acknowledge that you need him. You acknowledge that you can't live without him. You acknowledge that you're not stronger than life. You come to Christ through his teachings. That's wisdom. Now, if that's all there was to it, it would, it would you know, be a nice way to end the talk, but James goes further. And the Bible goes further when we talk about wisdom. It says, 
James, when you look at the book of James, he's continually talking about good conduct, the wisdom. If you want the wisdom that comes from above, you're going to get rid of selfish ambition. You're going to live in a certain way. Read the book of James with this in mind. James is saying, if you want wisdom, not only will you get the big thing right. You're not going to get the hedgehog bit right. You're going to get the one big thing right. There is a God and you can know him and you need him. There is a God, you're not him. You know him, you need him. You get to know him through Christ. He's revealed through Christ. You get the big thing right. But from that point onward, says James, you can't do that in a double-minded way. You can't do that and then walk out and, and pretend that nothing has happened. Doing that changes you. That doing that transforms you. In other words, what you've got to do is you've got to get the words lined up right in your life. Read James like this. You start with the fear of God. That means you go to his word. And what you listen to, the words that you hear, and the words that you speak, and what you do and what you feel, they've all got to be lined up in the right way. What you listen to and what you say and what you do and what you feel, those things all have to be consistent. If you've really listened to the doctor, when the doctor gives the advice, you're not going to walk out and say, that's a very well qualified man who could tell me lots of interesting facts about uh, you know my digestion and my heart and cholesterol. What a fascinating man, I'm off to get a Big Mac. You don't do that. If you truly respect the doctor and depend on him when he says, listen, this is what's happening to your body and you need to change, you'll walk out and think, right, I'm changing now and you'll feel the right way and you'll have the right attitude towards food and you'll have the right attitude towards exercise. It will change you. And that's what the book of James is about. In other words, when the Bible's talking about wisdom, he's not really talking about a whole lot that we don't already know, but there are important implications. And they're huge for our society. See, here's the thing about wisdom. A little child can have that. An uneducated person can have that. A person whose educational difficulties can have that. You do not need a degree. You know, what's the line? Is the degree in more cunning than the fox with a degree in cunning from Oxford University? That's not what the Bible means. It doesn't mean cunning. A little child can know there's a God and I need to depend upon him. I need to depend on him and I need to give my life to him. An old age pensioner living in the darkest recesses of the developing world who has never learned to read or write, who does not understand physics, who has never cracked the spine of a, one of those popular scientific textbooks, they can have that wisdom. Yet someone with the intellect and the mind of Richard Dawkins or Albert Einstein can be a fool. And that's actually radical. And that's changed the world that we live in. If you go back to the ancient Greeks, who should rule society? The smart, the well-bred, the well-connected. They should run the show. If you are tried for a criminal offence now, you'll be tried with a jury with 12 of your peers selected at random. When we vote in a prime minister or a president, every adult, 
will get a vote. Why? Because wisdom is equally available to all. That's a radical thought. That's a thought that didn't occur to the world until Christianity. It just didn't happen. When you're talking about the big things, anybody can be a hedgehog. It's not the foxes who need to run the world. Everybody should have an equal say. Everybody has the opportunity to spot something and to know something. It's radically democratic. As a matter of fact, this had um, this had a huge impact on society. One of the things that, the, that I've started teaching in school is actually the whole movement for the abolition of slavery. And one of the most fantastic things that I have actually learned over the last year, and you have no idea how much this has cheered my, cheered my heart, there's actually an historical event called the Baptist War. For a Baptist, this is fantastic. Um, it's called the Baptist War. It took place in, in Jamaica in 1831 to 1832. Now, it's called a war. Uh, it, it, there was no great battle there. It was actually more like an organized protest. Uh, what happened was that the slaves... Um, the, the slave trade had been abolished through the work of William Wilberforce. In other words, the, the taking slaves across the Atlantic. That part had been abolished. But slavery itself was still legal. If you were a, a slave in Jamaica, you stayed a slave. The Baptists in Jamaica organized a revolt to try and bring slavery to an end. Partly because they believed that there were laws in Parliament, there was a bit of misinformation, a bit of misunderstanding. But the bottom line was this. The Baptists organized a peaceful revolt to try and bring an end to slavery. Baptist churches, largely organized through the deacons, um, and many as a pastor won't be surprised at that, that the deacons had a revolt on the way. But th this was what was happening. These Baptist churches organized a revolt that was largely peaceful. Um, there's a film coming out this year called The Birth of a Nation about the Nat Turner Revolt in America. Um, a sort of a visionary, quasi-Christian slaughtered men, women and children in their sleep. If you've got Haiti, Toussaint uh, Louverture and people like that, um, mass slaughter. This revolt was largely about putting down tools and burning down farmyards. There were very, very few white, uh, white slavers who were killed. They couldn't keep complete control, but this was very well disciplined. It was not intended to kill everybody. It was meant to be a protest. What obviously happened is that they sent in the troops and the troops slaughtered these people. It's led by a slave called Samuel Sharp. One of the extraordinary things about those Baptist churches, one of the things historians have to get at is, look, well, hang on, look, if you look at the Nat Turner Rebellion, if you look at America, very few slave revolts over there. Um, if you look at Jamaica, there's a slave revolt, or, or if you look at Haiti, slave revolt, but there were massacres. What was different in Jamaica? Why did these guys get organized? And one of the answers they get to was the very nature of the churches. The very nature of the churches that these guys worked in. It's amazing to go to slave biographies and the first time they heard somebody preach the gospel. Now think about this for a moment. You're a slave. You're working on a field in Jamaica. You have been born into slavery. And your entire world revolves around this order. White guys at the top, we're at the bottom, and there's sort of a system of brutality that keeps us in place. And then you hear a white guy out in the field preaching, saying this. You're wicked. You need to repent. But he's not talking to you. He's talking to your master. That turns the world on its head. 
Now, there was more to just hearing that than liberty, and not every preacher wanted an end to slavery. Whitfield, for example, didn't try to end slavery, and even bought a few slaves. It's not as simple as that. But a lot of the slaves, when they heard that message for the first time, thought, there's no difference between me and him, you know. Because they heard the same message. The evangelicals went into the slaves, and the slave owners were fiercely devoted to keeping missionaries away from the slaves. Why? Because they would hear the message that there's no difference between them and me. Wisdom is available to all. They would hear the message that my, this guy might own a huge farm. This guy might have a lot of money. This guy might be from a big family or so it seemed if you lived there. But this guy's no better than me. They went to churches that quite often did not have pastors, couldn't afford pastors. So who did the preaching? Well, people took an equal share. There was no organ. Couldn't afford one. So they learned to sing in parts. Everybody carried an equal burden within their church. And within those churches you get this democratic spirit coming up that basically what everyone is equal. And it all comes back to this line that wisdom is equally available to all. There's no room for elites here. There's no room for a class of people who are better than others. It's equally available to all. And uh, the Baptist war, although it, it led to slaughter, it did play an instrumental part in bringing an end to slavery altogether. If it weren't for these notions in the Bible that wisdom is equally available to everybody, think about it, there is nothing more obvious that every human being is unequal in some sense. Some of us are smarter, some of us are faster, some of us are better looking, some of us are, you know, come from more money, some come from less. When you look at the results, you can say, look, it's obvious that there's inequality. The Christian message that people are fundamentally equal because everybody is not only in God's image, but everybody has the same fundamental need for God. That everybody is equally under judgment, and there's not only equal, equally under judgment, everybody is born equally foolish. With a need for wisdom. Without that message, where do you get the whole idea of equal equality or of human equality? Where can human rights come from? Basic human rights come from, unless you give them this kind of grounding. So the message of wisdom is not only um, radical, it's not only something that you already technically already know. When you put it like that, you'll be like, well, yeah. Kind of knew all that already. Christians sort of already began to grasp this. But when you put it into context, when you begin to look at the world around us, when you begin to look at the world today, you realize just what a radical effect this has had on the world, and what a much better way, and what a much wiser way this is to live. Um, I can race on at this point or stop for questions at this stage. Does anybody have questions or? Apparently not, I'll just keep going, okay? Um, I tend to go until I see a lot of eyes glazing over, and if your eyes are glazing over, you're not making it obvious enough, okay? So if you're dying off at this stage, you'll make it obvious to me that you're dying off, and I'll, you know, I'll try and bring things to a close. Okay, so um, according to my clock, I'm still a wee while left. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit now and finish off just by talking about Proverbs. Um, and again, looking at something that uh, 
being something I think that we all pretty much already know. But those make a huge difference to the world that we live in. And something that I think brings out the difference between a Christian saying an atheist or a skeptic. First thing about reading the book of Proverbs is that you have to read it within context and you have to be read it with a degree of sense. Um, this is Proverbs chapter 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruit of your crops, then your granaries will be filled with overflowing and your vats will brim over with wine. A lot of people read the book of Proverbs and you could almost get the impression that this guy is naively optimistic. You can read a few verses of Proverbs and get the idea that if I'm just a very good person and if I pray to God and if I'm nice to God, God will make me rich. So if you start reading the verses just one on their own and don't think about them too carefully, you can get the wrong impression. And that can lead to people in church service actually sitting, you know, preaching this. You know, come to God and make you rich. Um, and if you're not rich, you don't have enough faith. So you know, that, that's ideal. That's a win-win situation for the guy preaching it. Um, or it can lead to a skeptic coming to the group of Proverbs and just saying, that guy's just naive. Life isn't like that. You need to read the book of Proverbs as a whole. Okay, there's a lot of sayings in the book of Proverbs, and at times they can seem contradictory. A famous one is, you know, correct not a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own... Or correct a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. You know, or don't correct a fool according to his folly, in case you become like him yourself. And those two verses are actually side by side, and they seem to completely contradict each other. Correct a fool according to his folly. If somebody says something foolish, correct him. And the next verse says, if somebody's saying something foolish, don't correct them. The thing is, this guy lost his copy of the plot. Not at all. It's just saying, don't go to extremes. A wise man, a wise person, does not take one simple rule and apply that to all of life. One simple, he would lift out one proverb on his own, apply it to life and think, that's me set. I can memorize a few verses from the book of Proverbs and off I go, I've got life set out for me. The book of Proverbs has to be lived. You've got to read the verses, think about them, consider them. And really why those two verses are together is basically what they're saying is, listen, there's what, to go back to the Greeks, what Aristotle would have called a golden mean. There in the book of Proverbs is something that philosophers today in a story, oh, wasn't Aristotle very clever to come up with a golden mean? In other words, there's always like a, a bit in the middle you have to aim for. You've got to use the right virtue, the right, you know, the right, say the right thing at the right time. Proverbs was saying that long before. Listen, sometimes you've got to crack a fool according to his folly. Sometimes you don't. You've got to work out when. Be careful. Similar when it comes to riches. Proverbs at times seems to offer riches, but as you go through it, you find things like later on, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs 16. Better a little righteousness than much gain with justice. Proverbs 30. This is a prayer offered to God. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me my daily bread. You can see why knowing the book of Proverbs is essential for knowing things like the Lord's Prayer. Don't give me, don't give me vast riches, God. Otherwise, I'll forget that I depend on you. But I'm also weak. Don't leave me starving in case I begin to resent you. And you begin to see that the book of Proverbs is not all about health and wealth. Follow God and everything will be fine. 
book of Proverbs begins with a pro. The book of Proverbs. Hang on, what's the verse called? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forget not your mother's teaching. The book of Proverbs is beginning with one of the commandments. Honor your mother and your father so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. In other words, what Proverbs is saying is if you get wisdom right and you honor your father and your mother and they pass on the teachings correctly, God will bless the land you're living in and you'll live longer. Proverbs is all about promises. God's promises to his people. If you don't read it out, if you read it out of that context, you make a massive mistake and can end up thinking with just a wee bit of wisdom and a few Bible verses and the occasional prayer, I can make it rich. That's a massive mistake. What does Jesus say? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Proverbs is about promises. Wisdom is about promises. And that's actually really important. Because one of the big questions we all have to face, we all have to ask about ourselves, is right and wrong. I mean, every you know, atheist, Jew, Muslim, Sikh, everybody's going to ask about right and wrong. And we live in a secular society, or what I call a secularist society, a society that basically says, listen, we just need to keep God out. I mean, we're much happier if we just don't talk about God. We don't do God, okay? Forget about God and we'll be much happier. Let's, we're not going to talk about God, but we will talk about right and wrong. So, for example, we get a lot of courses in schools now, or a lot of you know, local and global citizenship, and all sorts of different things like that, that really talk about right and wrong, but try and leave God out of the picture. There's kind of a problem there. Uh, think of a simple rule. Please keep off the grass. Okay? Simple rule. You can see why you might obey that rule, because there's a rule there, okay? And you can also see what the rules protect, and you can see why the rule makes sense. So we'll follow that route. I'm going to consider a couple of other rules, though. Um, these are council bylaws, by the way. These are not, and this is not English criminal law, but according to one council in England, it is an act of treason to put a stamp with the Queen's head upside down on an envelope. Another council in England has allegedly made it illegal to eat a mince pie on Christmas Day. I, I don't know why. I honestly don't know why. I've looked at this, but you're not allowed to eat a pie on Christmas Day. There is a fantastic rule that says that nobody is allowed to die in the House of Commons. Right? Now, the reason is, if you die in the House of Commons, if I have this correctly, you're entitled to a state funeral, which is expensive. So, allegedly, the rule is if somebody dies in the House of Commons, you're going to have to carry them outside and declare them dead out there. So you can die in there, but the doctor can't declare you dead in there. He's got to take you outside and declare you dead outside. That's when you die. Because otherwise you can stay at a funeral. And there's only so many of those things the Queen can attend. So this is a rule. Now, enforcing that rule would be ludicrous. You imagine the headline, you man arrested for eating Ben's pie on Christmas Day. Nobody even bothers paying attention to these rules. And they pop up in headlines occasionally because, you know, that's a bit funny that these rules are still on the book. Uh, this story is fantastic. Phyllis may have read in Washington. Um, this was after the 9-11 scares. And um, she, she makes teddy bears and sells them. You know, she's part of some 
thing in America where people make kitty birds and swap them and sell them. It's a huge thing, apparently. Maybe there's something I got here. I don't know. But this is the little teddy bear she made. You know, a one-eyed monkey, doll, sheriff type thing. And as she was getting on the plane, security stopped her and said, I'm sorry, ma'am, we're going to have to confiscate your case. To which she asked, well, why? And of course, your automatic panic would be if somebody smuggled something into my case, if somebody put something there, you know, but what is happening? We're sorry, ma'am, you have a firearm in there. I wish she's no, no, I definitely have a firearm. Well, actually, it's a replica firearm, ma'am, and we're told to confiscate them. So her case was confiscated because the sheriff had a little toy gun that was a nine millimeters long. Because the rule said replicas of firearms are prohibited on carry-on bags. Carry-on bag was taken off, but she wasn't allowed to bring it on because the rule said any replica. You're not allowed to take it on. Believe it or not, Buzz Lightyear has been confiscated. Um, and a similar rule. Little Buzz Lightyear toy with a little blinking laser, the little blinking light confiscated because it's a replica weapon. And the rules very strictly say every replica weapon. And when they went to the stewards and everything, they said, Yes, we think it's ridiculous too. But when we asked, they said, We don't care what it is. If it's a replica of any type, you take it off, you take it away. These are bizarre rules. They, they serve no purpose. They make no sense. When they're followed, we get outraged. We honestly think of the steward. We say, oh, can, they, can they not turn the blind eye to that? What sort of job is worth is it? He looks at that gun and thinks, oh, there they are, three dimes. That's the length of the gun. Looks at that and thinks, oh, jeepers, better, better confiscate that in case somebody tries to take over the plane with it. Okay, who's going to put Buzz Lightyear on a terrorist watch list? It makes no sense. We get outraged when these rules are followed, when the person behind the you know when the person doing security doesn't exercise a bit of common sense. And it's the same with the other rules about the Christmas you know a rule that doesn't make sense: Christmas puddings or Christmas uh, noting bins pies on Christmas Day. If the rule does not make sense, don't follow it. Here's the problem. Morality, quite often, or some of our roots just don't make sense to people. I mean, why follow them? I mean, we can all recognise moral roots like, you know, love your neighbour as yourself, or, you know, be nice to people, or, you know, help people. You know, these roots about being decent, being civilised, being all those things. But for a lot of people, those rules just don't make sense. There's different ways to approach the world. You don't have to approach, approach the world and put morality first. You could decide to put yourself first instead. So, for example, Caesar, Julius Caesar. Caesar had a way of approaching the world. His dignitas, his dignity as a Roman. He wanted his name to mean something. Don't you know who I am? And it's an extraordinary story about how one man conquers the world, if you read his life story. And it's all centered on his dignitas. At one stage, there's a, a he was trying to get back from Greece to Italy to smuggle some weapons into troops. And, you know, the sea's choppy, the sea's more than choppy, it's stormy. And the guy in the boat says, listen, I'm not taking anybody across to Italy this week. To which Caesar stands up and says, you know, be brave. You know, the luck of Caesar is with you. Now that the man tried, he had to go back to shore, but that's what Caesar was after. That his very name could get men to take ridiculous risks. And that's how he lived his life. And for him it made sense. 
There are people who are hedonists. They believe that the pursuit of pleasure is the most important thing in life. That makes sense to them. You can live a perfectly rational, perfectly sensible life and put morality second. A life that makes sense to you. A life that makes as much sense as anyone. Caesar, all the, nobody, nobody in the ancient world says, Caesar, you're a fool. Caesar, you're an idiot. Caesar, you don't know what you're doing. Caesar was obviously a highly intelligent man with to him what seemed to be a very noble way of approaching life. But he wasn't that bothered about morality. Broke his word continually when it suited him. What do you say to somebody who isn't that particularly acquainted with the truth? And I put Donald Trump up there because when you know everybody's talking about him, I might as well talk about him. But secondly, I think he's his relationship with the truth and many other politicians' relationship with the truth is shifting at times. Now. He's not the living embodiment of evil. But when it suits him to bend the truth or to tell an outright lie, he will. And I think that's how morality most often affect these moral decisions most often come to us. It's not that somebody is going to say to themselves, well, there is no God, therefore I'm going to go out and become a mass murderer or something like that. That's not the effect. That's not the reason. It's these little lonely emergencies of life. It's the times when nobody's looking. It's the times when you can break the rules and nobody will see. It's the times when you can break the rules and nobody will mind. How can you tell somebody who's doing that they're being foolish? If there is no God. If there is no God, if there is no plan, if there is no basis to wisdom, if, then why not break the rules every so often when it suits you? How do you tell somebody like that that they're being a fool? What reason do you give somebody? How do you convince them that it isn't sensible to be, that you, you're being foolish, you're not being sensible by being immoral? There are other times though, and we all face this, when you can labour to do what is right and see no reward in front of you. There are times when you can do what is right and it can almost make things seem worse. You know, we've, we've all faced situations where people have said this, what did you have to tell the truth there for? Why did you have to be so noble about that? Why did you have to be courageous and stand up and say that? Why do you always have to try to do the right thing? It's making things worse for the rest of us. You give money to charity. But quite often we're giving money to charity and we're trying, you're thinking, is this money going exactly where we expect it to? You can read about all sorts. You vote for someone and then you find out there's a scandal. You can try to do the right thing. How do you know it makes a difference? Why try to live a good life? The book of Proverbs sets that out very neatly. It's about a promise. As Job said, you know, Job said, listen, when God made the world, he did it with wisdom, and now he makes that available to everybody. In other words, there's a plan. This universe, you, the people around you, there's a purpose to this. There's a plan behind this. 
you may not see the results immediately but there will be results they will be good they will benefit you and your children and those around you because if you're in the game of morality you're in it for the long run without the promise of God that he is in care that he is in control and that he takes care of things and that the universe is moving towards a particular goal and that your life fits into that and that by following his word you bring benefit there seems very little reason to have moral faith it's a big question for people who aren't Christians or who don't believe in God who don't believe in providence why take the risk to be moral the Christian doesn't have that question at all God is in control a promise has been made here that God is in control you may not see the results immediately and this is part of the problem that the world has today is that it's got no reason behind morality it's got a lot of rules it's got a lot of rights it's got a lot of you know it's got a very clear picture of what it wants the world to be like everybody's nice and everybody respects each other's rights but very little to motivate anybody to bother to try and make the world that way lots of reasons to be cynical because it only looks at what it can see the bible tells us to look to the future there's a promise and for the Christian there's blessing the Christian believes you know the Beatitudes are all about receive Jesus message and there'll be blessing there's a promise that you have to depend on and that is so important for Christians in particular because we believe that there has to be sacrifice and service that comes from faith there's no goodness without sacrifice and service to be good costs you something the smart guy rising to the top trumps they can have their moment the Christian plays a longer game the Christian looks to the future we've got a reason to believe in good we've got a reason to be good morality makes sense to us so the Christian can make better sense of the world that way we've got a reason to believe in human equality we've got a reason to believe in human equality because we believe that everybody is born equally foolish and that wisdom is equally available to all so by listening to the, the wisdom of God's word we can make better sense of the world but above all we need to remember that the whole message the whole message of James the whole message of the Bible is you need wisdom and you get that by asking God depending on him totally and that's how people can wise up and get their heads in gear thank you